0: you hardheads good morning good afternoon good evening good whatever it is wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours welcome to the hardheaded sports podcast episode number 48 hosted by me nick ryan and today is a very special day no introduction necessary on the show today is a day that for the remainder of time shall be known as nil day across the sporting world and it is the day in which the ncaa has revoked their restrictions on college athletes ability to profit off of their name image and likeness and as of today july 1st 2021 every single college athlete in the nation no matter what sport you play no matter what gender you are you now have the ability to profit off of endorsements of your name image and likeness and this is something that teams and and coaches and players have been fighting for, for, I almost said hundreds, it feels like a hundred years, but many, many years, decades at the very least, and it has been something in which it has become predominantly very apparent. Just how much money the NCAA had been making previously and how absolutely none of it had been going to the athletes that were playing despite most of the work being done by the athletes, of course. And today we're going to primarily focus on college football because that's the biggest one, but... Again, every single athlete in every single sport now has the opportunity to profit off of their image, likeness, and name. There were new rules that are now allow athletes to profit by monetizing social media accounts, signing autographs, teaching camps or lessons, starting their own businesses, participating in advertising campaigns, among many other potential ventures. Athletes will be allowed to sign with agents or other representatives to help them acquire endorsement deals. They will just need to report their business dealings to universities that they attend that's kind of the official description that was posted in the espn article earlier this morning and this is fantastic and I don't need to really tell you how fantastic this is this is fantastic for the players this is that this is fantastic for their families especially families that may be suffering from low income households in which they could really use the money that you know the, from the talent that their sons or daughters are exhibiting in in terms of athleticism on a football field on a hockey rink on a soccer pitch on a baseball field on a basketball court whatever have you This is great for the players. This is great for their families. And it's about damn time. This should have been done a decade ago. And this is fantastic. Especially, I'm so jazzed about this personally because I have worked in college athletics for five years now. And I have reported college athletics for five years now. And to be able to understand the gravity and the weight that this this new deal holds for the lives of these athletes. It's unfathomable. um, Because they're just young kids. They're young kids that need to find their way in the world and here they are, you know, trying to chase their dreams. Now there are other ways for them to make money from their god-gifted abilities or the abilities that they have worked so hard for other than the ultimatum, which is either you make it to the professional level or you don't and you do something else with a college degree. Now, even if you don't move on to the next level or you flame out of the next level, you do have endorsement deals. You do have the ability to make businesses. You do have the ability to sign autographs. And do camps and lessons, and you know, advertising campaigns. There is so much more on the table. It is less life and death when it comes to making the professional leagues. If you are somebody that is trying to make money off of your 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 talents and your skills, which that's what everybody else in the entire universe does, right? We make money off the of things that we are good at. That's why. That's what going to That's what going to work is. That's what having a job is. Now, obviously, I don't. I, it, it, obviously, it would depend. I mean, depending on how well you flip a burger somewhere. But my, po- my point being, right, this is fantastic for the college athletes. And athletes have already, you know, taken – you know, no quarter, they're going after it. Mackenzie Milton, quarterback for Florida State University, and Eric King, who is the quarterback currently for uh, University of Miami, they have already founded a foundation, uh, I think it's called Dreamfield, which will specifically be working with NFT to help encourage and help along other athletes in their ventures, their business ventures. Uh, of course, Mackenzie Milton was the UCF quarterback before he went down with a horrific leg injury. Now he's transferred to Florida State, which is where I, I work. Uh, so this is this is a little bit of pride speaking for me as well. Normally I go unbiased on these takes, but a little bit of pride for me as well. Uh, Milton is now, as I said, working with the Eric King, the enemy at University of Miami, <laughs> to uh, create a dream-filled foundation uh, to help these athletes move along, and it is absolutely fantastic. And, um, the ability for these athletes to start profiting off their likeness is something that, as I said, should have been done a full on decade ago. And now that they finally have the opportunity to do and do things that they normally wouldn't have been able to do is going to make the choice on whether or not to not, first of all, go to college, but also where to go to college. It spices things up dramatically. And again, this is coming off of a bunch of pressure applied on the NCAA in the past couple of weeks. Over two dozen states had enacted laws that directly imposed the the NCAA's regulations on obviously profiting off of player likeness. And some of those major states were major money-making states for the NCAA. So we're talking uh, Texas and Florida and California. Some of those are big, big states. California, I think, was the first major one to start this snowball. And then, of course, there was a big Supreme Court decision that weighed on things eventually as well. Things were just getting too tight for the NCAA to continue operating as the status quo and they again as I have said multiple times, I know this is a pretty unorganized video, but I'm just so happy. I'm so happy for you know the, the sport. I'm so happy for the evolution of college football, basketball, baseball, whatever have you. I'm happy for these kids. I'm happy for these kids' families, especially you know these families that really could use the income um, as and, and and it makes it a less life or death situation as opposed to making it to the professional game uh, for some of these athletes who want to profit off of their their skills and their talents. So, uh, it's it's fantastic across the board. You should see sponsorships with players start popping up. Immediately, it's probably players from Alabama, from Clemson, from Oklahoma, from USC, from um, University of Florida, Florida State University, like wherever you're going to start seeing endorsement deals pop up all over the place. This is a great day for college sports, and it's an evolution of college sports that needed to happen for close to a decade now. And hey, oh, big thought here, big thought here that just happened. Maybe we can actually get named players in in the new college football video game that's going to be coming out in a few years. Ah. Oh. That just that just is the cherry on top for me. That's a little bit of a selfish and personal addition to uh, the video here. But I am so happy about these changes. What do you think about these changes? Make sure to let me know. This is a huge, huge win for the players, their families, and for college sports overall. The NCAA is unfortunately probably going to lose a little bit of money here. But this is an evolution that needed to happen. They couldn't stranglehold the players anymore for any longer than they had already had so there was some big news in the NFL this week, and I wanted to take some time to really step back for a second and analyze my feelings on the topic and make sure that my feelings and my opinions were conveyed correctly, because it's it can be a pretty sensitive subject. There are some people that are going to really like this event and what it means for the league overall, and there are some people that are not going to like it. Uh, And regardless of political preference or personal feelings, I wanted to make sure that I towed the line as much as possible despite my own personal feelings so I could properly give an opinion and a take that um, does a good job of representing what this means for the sport. And of course, this event that happened is that the NFL has its first openly active gay player and his name is Carl Nassib and he came out. Earlier this week, of course, it is the month of June, which is quote-unquote Pride Month, and the NFL did a nice follow-up statement, and, you know, there was some reservations about that for me personally, because I don't want what Carl Nassib is doing to be used as a publicity stunt by the NFL, because you know, whenever it's Pride Month, you know, companies around the world can just ignore the LGBTQ plus community for the entire year round, but when it comes to June, kind of similar to Black History Month in that matter where all the companies say we support you we support you we support you and whether or not you actually believe your support it's it's not a a year round support system uh, like it is when these you know either these racial months of celebra- celebrating these different races or celebrating your your gender or your sexual orientation you know there's it's that whole internet meme where it's like okay it it's june so that means every sing- single company around the world their pr department is going to support uh gay people you know kind of that sort of mean. I, I don't want that to be what this ends up being for the NFL. I don't want Carl Nassib's courage to come out publicly as being gay to be used for a publicity stunt by the NFL to you know, really to 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 basically open up itself to a larger audience that maybe it wouldn't have had before. Uh and seemingly a horribly under appreciated and horribly over uh, underrepresented faction of of people who love football or play football that but also may be gay as well. So I wanted to kind of like air that concern as well. But I did want to talk about Carl Nassib and what he's doing. And if you missed it, he made a post on Instagram, which I like the way that NFL players have been posting on Instagram recently. It comes from word of mouth. It doesn't come from word of mouth. It comes from their mouth. So you talk about J.J. Watt announcing that he is being released by the Texans and where he's going, uh, as opposed to being announced publicly through leaks or through agents. I, I like the fact that Carl Nassib took the time to say it from his heart and say it from himself. And he said, what's up, people? I'm at my house in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but finally feel comfortable getting it off my chest. I really have the best life, the best family, friends, a job a guy could ask for. I'm a pretty private person, so I hope you guys know that I'm not doing this for attention. I just think that representation and visibility are so important. I actually hope that one day videos like this and the whole coming out process are not necessary. But until then, I will do my best and my part to cultivate a culture that's accepting and compassionate. And I'm going to start by donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project. They are an incredible organization. They're the number one suicide prevention service for LGBTQ youth in America. And, of course, as I said earlier, Roger Goodell supported that statement, and the NFL also donated a sum of money to that same uh, Trevor Project organization. So, obviously, fantastic for Carl Nassib. Support is, for the most part, especially from players and players on his team, has been overwhelming for the guy. And you're going to see a lot of comparisons to this. And this is kind of why I wanted to talk about it today and take some extra time. You're going to see a lot of comparisons to Michael Sam when you talk about Carl Carl Nassib and how he is the first actively gay player uh, in the NFL. And I want to point out that Michael Sam and Carl Nassib, the situations are not the same and it should not be treated the same at all. Because the situation with Michael Sam, obviously, if you remember or if you don't, he was drafted later in the rounds. He was, an, I think, an SEC defensive player of the year at one point. He was drafted in the later rounds, and he was seen on national TV kissing his boyfriend then or his husband. I can't quite remember which one it was. And then it became a gigantic media storm of Michael Sam And, you know, how he was the first gay player or one of the very uh, open gay players to be potentially trying out for an NFL team. And what happened is that Michael Sam just kind of did not make the team. He was not good enough to make the team. And somehow, some way that was misinterpreted as being him being pushed out by the league because he was gay or pushed out and and roadblocked and blacklisted by the league because he was gay, and the truth of the matter is, is that Michael Sam just was not good enough to be an NFL football player, and as unfortunate as it was for him, you know, he was at that time the icon that gay people who either played or watched football could latch onto and and appreciate and feel represented by, so, you know, there was a lot of misinterpretation about who Michael Sam was and what he, you know, meant to people and also like how he was pushed out of the league because he wasn't pushed out of the league the fact of the matter is is that he couldn't play ball he could not hang Carl Nassib is a different story he's been playing in the NFL for four years now he plays for the Raiders he's a very solid defensive lineman and he's already displayed the fact that he can do his job he could do his job well his sexual orientation does not detriment his ability to play football and, you know, that, that kind of also is another difference between him and Michael Sam is people are saying, well, why would why would I really want to be tackled by if I'm the quarterback? Why would I you know want to shower with him or why would I want to be tackled by him? Carl Nassib up until this point has been straight for four years? Nobody would have known any difference. And obviously him having time in the NFL eases this transition a little bit to where people are saying, OK, this guy can actually play football like he's a pretty good defensive lineman. <laughs> Uh, for the, uh, the Las Vegas Raiders, but obviously now he's gay and that puts a little bit of a different line on things. And I think it's making it a little bit easier for people to accept it in that, that stance. But uh, I want to really reiterate the fact that this is not Michael Sam 2.0. Carl Nassib is not Michael Sam 2.0. He can play football. He has played football. And in a time in which social acceptance is better than ever, it, it, it's easier for you to be, you know, whether you whatever whatever your gender is or your orientation is or whatever your race is, there are barriers that are being broken every single day, whether it's women playing in predominantly male sports or whether it's athletes that are coming out as gay in a predominantly straight sport. And obviously, the good thing about Carl Nassib is that There are plenty of athletes that are playing in the NFL that I'm sure are either questioning or are gay or bisexual or whatever that may be. As long as somebody stands up at some point that pushes for the envelope and pushes forward or pushes through rather the barrier that was previously once there. And it's incredibly courageous for Carl Nassib to be doing this and the candor in which he has done it as well, I think is also important because, and I'm going to say this very tactfully or the most tactfully way that I can, there are people that come out as gay and try and, in a way, and this is, I know this is going to sound bad to some people, but they try and enforce that upon you in a way, they kind of wear it a little bit too strongly and that can turn off some people that may be okay with, with gay or bisexual people, but are not you know, necessarily okay with that being in, impressed upon them, um, if you get it. There are people like that. There are multiple different receptions to this. Karnasip has done it in such a way in which it's a clear Instagram post in which he is acting as himself. He's He's talking in a very candid and warm-hearted tone, and he's letting people know he's getting it off his chest, and it's made it such a... Even if you aren't gay, it made it such a relatable and understanding post because everybody has something that they're insecure or they need to get off their chest. And maybe they're not necessarily comfortable with with themselves, whether it's their weight, whether it's their height, whether it's their um, their their inability to build muscle. Maybe it's their orientation. Maybe it's the fact that they're black or they're white or they're Asian or, you know, everybody has something about them. Right. Every everybody has something about them that maybe they don't um, necessarily want to talk about. Or that they kind of just want to push to the side and push to the back of their mind. Yet here is Carl Nassib just in a simple Instagram post. It took him probably five minutes to record. Tells the world, hi, I am Carl Nassib. I'm in my house in Pennsylvania. I want to tell you that I am gay and I want to build a conversation and I want to contribute to the Trevor Project to um, contribute uh, against suicide numbers for LGBTQ plus uh, youth in America. That is Again, tremendously courageous, but it also does it in such a way in which it's the least offensive way possible. It's not thrusting it upon anybody. It's not being overpowering or overbearing about it to anybody. It's just a guy announcing his sexual preference, and obviously his goal is to... You know, create awareness for what this is and hopefully inspire other athletes in different sports, including football, to uh, maybe be a little bit more open about their sexuality. And it it, it makes a huge difference, as I already said, the fact that he has already played in the NFL. So now that Carl Nassib, uh, assuming that nothing bad happens to him moving forward, like he gets cut for the team or something. He is in a position in which he's already played four successful years in the NFL. It's not a Michael Sam situation where people could misinterpret the fact that, you know, he was just not a good enough football player to be able to make an NFL team and he got quote unquote pushed out of the league. There's no way to misinterpret that. My uh, car, excuse me, Carl Nassib is not Michael Sam 2.0 hats off to Nassib. I hope I was able to correctly identify and explain my feelings and You know, I'm interested to hear what you all have to say about this. Please keep it, you know, family friendly wherever you talk about this, because obviously there are people that are going to really appreciate stuff like this, and there are people that are going to lash out negatively on this. And I just wanted to properly talk about the topic without really you know, elbowing somebody in the gut too hard and and really just say how I feel and report on it as uh, any anybody that's unbiased sh- uh, should be. So good for Carl Nassib, and I wish him the greatest success. And uh, for for him and, and gay people alike, I hope that if this, you know, really does spur greater exception for you, especially in professional sports, that's fantastic. And um, I think the world is trending in that direction anyway, but obviously this is a really... Uh, important start for the LGBTQ community. So hats off to Carl Nassib, and I wish him nothing but success. Big news for the NFL, maybe sweeping changes in other sports as well. So last week on the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast, we talked about the MLB substance abuse issues Maybe we shouldn't call it that, because out of context, that sounds really, really bad. Let's call it the substance changes. We talked about the MLB rule changes, the substance changes in which they were placing a ban on spider attack and sticky stuff, and basically over-clarifying what a pitcher is and is not allowed to use. Uh, Sunscreen and rosin kind of put into a gray area. And I talked with my old pal Josh, who was a pitcher in the Mets minor league league farm system for about four or five years before he had to retire due to medical uh, issues. Uh, he was a Big East pitcher of the year in 2014. Drafted in the fifth round by the Mets, a fantastic guy. Uh, and we talked with him, and we talked with him about the issues that Tyler Glasnow was bringing up after he tore his UCL. And essentially, he was uh, claiming that the sudden change in MLB rule set, the the sudden changes, were something that a- aided him in him getting hurt. And, of course, we saw some other condemnation of the rule changes being in the middle of the season. He felt that the changes shouldn't be done in the middle of the season. And specifically, he was talking about the health of other pitchers and how you need to, you know, baseball is a very routine-oriented sport. If you're changing your routine like that, people are more people are going to get hurt. So we saw DeGrom go on the 10-day IL for a little while, and that was a little bit concerning. Obviously, Glasnow is needing to have surgery, or he's still on the IL. I'm not quite sure uh, which one, but he is still injured. And while Tyler Glasnow was talking about, you know, the rule changes being done in the middle of the season in the bad, it was bad for pitchers in general, it didn't take too long for MLB to become a gigantic circus because of this, considering what happened the other night where not only did we have to see uh, Sergio Ramos um, <laughs> have him drop his pants on national television to prove that he wasn't using anything, but Matt Scherzer... Uh, in his game against the Phillies, it was the Nationals versus the Phillies, was checked three separate times, including times that uh, he was leaving and going out of the dugout. He was checked a three additional times by Joe Girardi and the umpires for Sticky Stuff. And one of the umpires actually had to rub Max Serger's head um, to find out whether or not he had Sticky Stuff in his hair. And this is an absolute circus. It's become an absolute circus. I mean, if you could see the frustration in Max's face, pitchers are pissed off about this. And this is on top of sign stealing. This is on top of delayed games. This is on top of the replay system that continuously delays games as well. This, you know, bounces off of falling ratings for the MLB and it's an absolute circus. And, you know, Tyler Glass saying, hey, this shouldn't be done in the middle of the season. It should be done at the end of the season so we can prepare for it. Even though he was talking about the routine of the pitchers and he was talking about the health of the pitchers, this has snowballed into becoming a gigantic circus in which you could almost make the argument saying, don't make changes too quickly, don't overreact. spider tack is absolutely an issue. It's an issue, it needs to be dealt with, but doing it in the middle of the season and disrupting everything, and now games are becoming even longer and more disruptive than they were before, the MLB is just not un—it's not enjoyable to watch. And even though ratings are going up right now, people are tuning in for the circus. They're not tuning in because they're like, oh, I'm really invested in this Friday night baseball game. No! They're invested because Sergio Romo and Matt Sergio were getting harassed by umpires and Joe Girardi the other night. And, of course, Joe Girardi, you know, was saying, oh, I saw Max, you know, running his hands through his hair, and I've known him for 10 years, and I've never seen him do that before. Joe Girardi is a smart manager. He's been around the game for a long time. Now we're going to have in situations like the other night in which a pitcher could be absolutely dealing and the umpire, excuse me, the opposing manager could say, hey, check up for sticky stuff and completely throw off his rhythm to the point where Clayton Kershaw actually offered up a pretty good idea saying, hey, if the managers get it wrong, there needs to be some kind of punishment and that could be an additional rule change. That comes into play, but what we are witnessing right now is a perfect example of when you try and push out rule changes way too early. It's a situation in which it's made this this entire spider tax situation even more uh, of a detriment to baseball than it already was before. And I'm not gonna act like cheating isn't a part of baseball, right? Cheating is a core. I don't want to say pillar of baseball, but any. You know, really, really invested baseball fan will tell you that more often than not, every single major league baseball team cheats to some degree. The difference is between those who get caught and those who don't get caught. There's sign stealing. There's obviously banging on trash cans. I mean, you took a look at uh, I forget who it was. I think it was Garrett Cole. Uh, the other night, who pulled out his hat and he held a three up to the catcher. And that's basically saying, hey, uh, there's a man behind us. Now we have to run our third, you know, uh, playbook of signs to make sure that our signs aren't getting stolen. So on top of sign stealing, on top of uh, what or what is not allowed to be used when you're trying to get a better grip on the ball, whether it's sweat and rosin. I mean, I can imagine now that, you know, people saw, you know, Scherzer go to his head and get a whole bunch of sweat and rods, and maybe people are going to start dousing themselves in water uh, before they go out for an inning just to get some better grip on the ball. So not only are they going to be able to pitch better, uh, they're now, they're going to have better control over the ball so they don't actually accidentally lose grip and throw at people, which becomes an advanced risk. And you heard uh, Max Scherzer talking about that himself in his postgame interview. It's just become... Uh, catastrophe. I'm not going to act like it's doomsday scenario for Major League Baseball, but you can't say that this is good for baseball. And even though Tyler Glass now was saying, hey, we can't change rules in the middle of the season for the health and safety of the pitchers and for the sake of their routine, it has absolutely snowballed and become such a revolving door of issues. It's like Major League Baseball is a sinking ship and every single try. Every single time Rob Manfred tries to rush down to the second deck and plug the leaking hole, he spurts open two other leaks in different sections of the ship, but because he is not taking the time to plug the right holes. And while I will absolutely attest and say that spider attack should be removed from the game, it's not healthy for the game of baseball, cheating has been around baseball Forever. Whether it's steroids, whether it's pine tar, whether it's juicing the bats, whether it's using spider attack, whether, you know, I don't know, whatever pitchers were using 50 or 60 years ago. It's a pillar of the sport. People get caught and then people don't. So to go in and make changes, widespread changes like this in the middle of the season has just made this entire situation a circus. And sure, the ratings are up for Major League Baseball, but it's because people are tuning into the circus You want to watch, you know, stuff like, um, you know, you ever go to a carnival and the most popular attraction is like a Believe It or Not or some really kooky, weird stuff. They're not actually going um, because it's a fantastic attraction. They're going because it's weird and there's entertainment value in that aspect of it. So it's really bad for baseball granted not as much as happened in the past couple of days as opposed to the night where you know Sergio Romo had to drop his pants or didn't have to he chose to which was kind of kind of a hit or miss decision and then of course Scherzer getting uh checked three separate times by Girardi it's just not good for the game it's not good for the game and I wish that they did wait to the end of the season to really think about the changes Have a meeting between management and players and work it out. Get a baseball that is good for both sides. Make sure that gray areas in the unwritten rules of baseball are stamped out to make a better and more efficient game. Because it's one thing if you're trying to, you know, make the game more watchable and reduce the cheating of it. That's one thing. But when you overreact, not overreact, but you you rush out changes in the middle of the season and it just opens up other loopholes for managers and players to exploit it's just going to make everybody pissed off. You could tell that management's pissed off. You could tell that players are pissed off. You could tell that games are taking longer on top of, uh, sign stealing and shifts. Oh, the shift is another big one shifts in games, um, slowed down games. You know, the pace of the game, it's just not good for baseball. Baseball is a circus right now. And these changes should have been done at the end of the season to avoid, uh, kind of major league baseball being a little bit of a laughingstock right now. I know that seems like a little bit of an extreme interpretation of what's happening, but, but, you take a look at the events that happen. it's like, how could you, how could you not take a look at this and say, wow, this is just so unprecedented and very weird for a professional sport like this? It appears that, at least for the meantime, the process in Philadelphia is over, or at the very least, it has come to a grinding stop. Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers eliminated from the playoffs once again last night. Uh, at the hands of the Atlanta Hawks, which is, has probably been, apart from the Suns, the surprise of the NBA playoffs. It's a little bit weird to be talking about this topic today. Because normally on the show, and there are plenty of shows like mine out there on the internet, and hell, there are shows on TV that are exactly mine, where I take an unbiased approach to everything, and I give my opinion on something, and I add to the conversation. Because that's what these shows are. It's, it's taking different viewpoints and adding to the conversation. And whether or not you agree with me, that's part of the beauty of the show is that everybody is going to have a different takeaway from a set piece of information. You you give 100 people a piece of information or, or give them a statement or, or have them watch a video or something. They are going to take away something different. Every single person is going to take away something different. So when you have a conversation like this where... It is very, very clear what is going on in Philadelphia. It is very, very clear that Ben Simmons is to blame, along with a little bit of blame for Doc Rivers in this series. Ben Simmons is the one that everybody's going to point to to blame as to why the 76ers didn't blow past the Hawks in this series. I feel like I don't have much to add. I feel like for the first time on the show, there is nothing that I can say to you that you don't already know or that you can't decipher for yourselves. And that's a very compromising and weird position for me because, again, this show is built off my personality and it's projecting an opinion that people agree or disagree with and it facilitates discussion. But throughout the entire internet over the past... How long ago did that game end? 16 hours or so? The general consensus has been, what the hell happened to Ben Simmons and how did it get this bad to where he is single-handedly keeping his team from the potential that it has? Now granted, there are parts in this series where you can point to different players on that roster and different people on that coaching staff and say, you need to do better in that moment. Tobias Harris being a general pedestrian throughout the series, Tobias Harris, you could point at him and say, Hey, what are you doing? You need to play better. Joel Embiid playing with a uh, torn ligament in his knee. You say, well, look, Joel, it's rough for you to play. You've got that excuse that you're injured. You're not playing 100%. But still, you can make better decisions unlike turning the ball over in crucial fourth quarter moments in Game 7. You need to do better. Doc Rivers continuously showing that he has teams, although I think Doc Rivers is a great coach. He continuously has teams that fault in the the late half of series. They had a 2-1 lead on the Atlanta Hawks. They lose the series uh, 4-3. And then we get to Ben Simmons, who, by all accounts, is... The one player in the NBA that I think is the most disappointing, he's this next generation of a disappointing superstar. A superstar that coming into the league, you take a look at him and you say, this guy has tremendous talent and athletic ability, but if he makes that next leap, he is going to be almost unstoppable. Players that I consider in this category are Giannis Antetokounmpo, Ben Simmons, even Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook for that matter. But where Giannis has excelled, and I have given Giannis a lot of criticism over the past couple weeks. I said he can't really buy his own shot. He's a little bit of a liability when it comes to those fourth quarter moments when he needs to shoot the ball from outside, you know, 12 feet. Because uh, if you look at his shot chart, Giannis is driving through people and being superior in his athleticism, and that's how he gets most of his points. So that has always been my, crit- my criticism of Giannis, as good of a player as he is. And Ben Simmons, his game was often perceived to be the same way. But the difference between the two is that Giannis has actually put in the work to get better, and he's not afraid to shoot. Now, some people, when they see Giannis pull up for a uh, a, a running jumper on the three-point line, it kind of just makes you cringe a little bit and says, Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> like, drive the hole. But... You know, there are some times when he does make some clutch three-point baskets when he's needed to, and he does make his free throws, and you can see that Giannis has taken the reality of what he needs to work on as a basketball player, free throw shooting and three-point shooting, general shooting from the floor in general, and he has put that time in to not only make his body better, but to make his basketball form better. Ben Simmons has done absolutely none of that to the point where it has wrecked his confidence completely, and now he's considered a liability. And sure, uh, Kenny the Jet Smith made a, made a, made a point on T- inside the NBA on TNT saying he doesn't go from an all-star to a liability in three months. And my answer to that was that Ben Simmons has pretty much been a liability for the past two seasons for Philadelphia. This was Philadelphia's season. This was their best chance to go to the finals and win a championship in Philadelphia, because I would argue that if the Bucks win this year, they'll be back stronger and better than ever next year. The Nets are going to be healthier next year. So there was never going to be a better chance than this year in which the Bucks were coming in as kind of a uh, uh, the word being, I guess, um, an unforeseen force kind of up in the air as to how well they were play they would play considering how they exited the playoffs in the bubble and then you had the nets in which their health was a great concern and their health is inevitably i think what turned the series around in the bucks versus nets series so there you have 76ers and all you have to do is go through Atlanta which granted Atlanta is playing tremendous basketball they're extremely well coached and they have been the surprise of the playoffs as i've said But it's still a team that you should be able to beat when you have the best center in the game, apart from Anthony Davis and Joel Embiid, and you have a good coach with a good supporting cast, apart from your second superstar on the team, who is just so afraid to shoot the basketball, so afraid to drive the hole and shoot because he doesn't want to shoot free throws. This entire thing is on Ben Simmons. And again, it's a weird position for me because I don't have to tell you any of that. I feel like the general reception around the internet, around the world is, yeah, it's Ben Simmons's problem. You don't have to tell me that. Uh, just some stats that I pulled up from uh, the ESPN article that I was reading last night, or this morning rather. Trying to find something, trying to find a different angle to take to make this a little bit more interesting than me just dumping on Ben Simmons. Uh, but, again... There's, there's no other way for me to really look at it, and I'm interested to see if anybody else can take a different angle or if anybody else is still going to defend Simmons after this. And I, I don't know what the answer is for Simmons. I don't think that he has trade value right now. I don't think that the, you know, the possibility of him going anywhere, I've seen some people say, hey, do a blockbuster trade Damian Lillard for Ben Simmons. Portland isn't that stupid. Uh, and I don't think that he has the tr- I don't think that Simmons has the trade value that he would need in order to pull off a blockbuster deal like that, especially after his performance in this playoff series, Simmons shot 15 from four, uh, for 45, which is 33% on foul shots against Atlanta in the series and 34.2% from the line for the entire playoffs. And that's the worst free throw percentage in NBA playoff history for a player with at least 70 attempts or more. The Hawks held him under 10 points in four out of the seven games in the conference semifinals, including his five-point showing on Sunday. He failed to attempt a single shot in the fourth quarter in 5 out of 7 games. The Sixers squandered a 2-1 series lead by falling, or excuse me, failing to protect an 18-point cushion in game 4 and a 26-point advantage in game 5, and that is the game that I think most people will point to at the end of it. Not necessarily game 7 because Joel and B didn't play well down the stretch. The 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 entire team didn't play well down the stretch. Ben Simmons obviously played horrible throughout this entire series. But it was the 26 point lead in game five where the, the Hawks came screaming back to win that game, which was, by all intents and purposes, over and in, in the bag for Philadelphia. Ben Simmons was four for 14 from the line in that game, and the Sixers lost by, for, by three. If he just makes three more free throws to get to 50%, that's a tie game. He shoots four, or he makes four more th- uh, free throws. The Sixers win that game. And obviously, that's looking at the stats and, and and looking at it in hindsight. But if you can't, I mean, even just 50% of your free throws, that should be well within the capabilities of a professional NBA basketball player and a professional, uh, or, or excuse me, an all-star. And somebody who is playing the point guard position, sure, he's 6'10", he should be playing probably something like power forward now in his career, but it's not like he's Shaquille O'Neal, where he's, uh, you know, a seven-foot-one center that his main job is to legitimately dominate the rim and to dunk the ball home, make small hook shots. He's not Shaquille O'Neal. Ben Simmons is a player that plays on the perimeter. He should be able to make shots. He should be able to make free throws, no matter how tall he is, no matter how uh, athletic he is, and and how. He has learned to play the game of basketball. There is something broke with Ben Simmons confidence to not only say, I'm not going to shoot the ball, but also saying I am just knowing that I'm not going to make free throws. There's no point in me for uh, to me to even drive the lane. And everybody knows that I don't need to tell you that, which is why this is a weird thing to talk about on the show today, because the show any sports show like mine is something in which I give you my opinion on a situation uh, and see if you know you agree or disagree with my opinion because everybody has different takeaways. But f- so far, I haven't seen a single takeaway that hasn't said that Ben Simmons isn't the problem in Philadelphia right now. There is blame to go around. There's blame to go to Joel. There's blame to go to Bias Harris. Seth Curry can't play defense. Doc Rivers... Um, has a bad coaching record trying to regain the steam and the momentum. Uh, and he has a bad history of losing series late in the series. But, uh, if Ben Simmons, you know, was anything else besides a pedestrian in that series, the 76ers would be going to the Eastern Conference Finals and playing the Bucks. This was the 76ers' year, in my opinion, to make noise and the process that has been churning and, and, and um, progressing over the past four, five, six seasons, it seems like it's come to a stop because of Ben Simmons' inability and his willingness to create himself a jump shot and his willingness for him to actually shoot the ball, drive the lane, and shoot free throws. The aggressiveness is what everybody will point to, and everybody is exactly right. It's the aggressiveness and the mind, the mental aspect to Ben Simmons and what he feels apparently that he just cannot shoot the basketball so why even bother that's a problem that's not something that you should have in your second superstar on the team I would imagine that Ben Simmons doesn't play another game in a Philadelphia 76ers jersey I say that now but you know hearing myself say it I say but who's going to trade for him who's going to trade for him after seeing what they saw last night I I I wouldn't know (laughs) I wouldn't even begin to guess to tell you I've been wanting to talk about chris paul for the past week or so i wanted to talk about them or kim specifically director directly excuse me after they swept the denver nuggets but i withheld on talking about that because the day that i was going to talk about that on the show chris paul ended up getting coronavirus and the, the the whole slogan for this segment was going to be i am super happy for chris paul and it would would have been a little weird for me to say oh man i am really happy like chris paul should get a round of applause i'm really happy for chris paul when he ends up getting a, a virus that has killed So many people. Um, It would have felt a little awkward to make that take at that moment, so I withheld on it. And now that the Phoenix Suns are up 2-0 against the Clippers, I think it's a good time to kind of reintroduce that take, especially because Chris Paul is rumored to be going to be available for Game 3 in LA moving forward. I am, now that we have the chance to talk about it, very happy for Chris Paul, and I'm very happy that he has finally found a role on a team that suits him the best. And I'm happy for him that he's been able to lead this Phoenix Suns team and really be that father figure for a young, up-and-rising Phoenix Suns team that coming into the playoffs, I thought, okay, this year they're going to be a team that has a great regular season, but they're going to flame out in the playoffs because they don't have that experience. And then they'll come back next year, and they'll be really dominant. But no, the Suns, kind of like the Hawks in the Eastern Conference, have exceeded expectations, and I contribute that a lot to the tutelage that Chris Ball has been able to give this Phoenix Suns team especially in a game two situation like last night where, Hey, look, Devin Booker didn't play well. He had objectively a pretty bad game. He was five from 16 from the floor, one for three from three point range. He hit all his free throws. He was nine for nine and he ended with 20 points, but for Devin Booker's standards in which his job on the team is to be a wet bucket. You know, he is supposed to just drain threes and really shoot the ball well and provide a lot of the points for this team. If Devin Booker had this type of game last season and the season before that, Phoenix would have absolutely lost that game. I would have I would argue that any night that Devin Booker wasn't putting up 25 to 30 or more, the Phoenix Suns were oftentimes losing that game. And now you have a team in which this team, sure, obviously it's different. This team has not only matured, but it has grown in such a way that you can really see Chris Paul's mentorship throughout the team. A lot of calmness, no overreacting. They seem very determined. They seem very, very Chris Paul-esque and you see it towards the end of a game last night which as i said Devin Booker was not playing well towards the very end you have 9 point excuse me not 9 you have 0.9 seconds left to find a basket now some of this is due to the fact that DeMarcus Cousins just in a brain dead play was not covering the baseline or not putting his hands up above the baseline cuz hey look any basketball person will tell you if they have 0.9 seconds left in the game the only hope that they have of scoring is a lob to the hoop and he wasn't covering the baseline, and DeAndre, DeAndre Ayton was just that much taller than Zubac, and he was able to slam it home for the wins to take the 2-0 series lead. But the 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 guts and the maturity of this Phoenix Suns team is something so rare for a team that's this young. And I really, really wanted to commend Chris Paul for... For his mentorship and the father role that he's kind of taken on for this team. And I think it suits him best. You take a look at two out of his last three stops. He was in Houston in which he was expected to play alongside James Harden and still be a number two scorer, still be a dominant point guard on that team. Obviously, his for his stop in L.A. with DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin, he was supposed to be the number one, number two scorer on that team. He was forced to play in a role in which he needed to be present almost all the time. He couldn't really just sit back and manage the game like a true point guard would. And sometimes more or less and obviously for other reasons in L.A. didn't work out, mainly because they were all butting heads. But you take a look at his situations in recent years in which he goes to OKC and he leads a team that had no business being in the playoffs to a playoff appearance in the bubble. Chris Ball has kind of settled in into the latter stages of his career in which he can stake a step back, be that number three or number four score, but still be such a dominant passer and floor general. And I love this role for him. I feel like he's happy in this role. He gets to lead this team. And all the experience and all the knowledge and all the mentoring that has taken place by Chris Paul throughout the season for the Phoenix Suns has really allowed the Suns to be able to win games like this. And again, I don't want to put all the credit on Chris Paul because I do think that Monty Williams is a fantastic basketball coach, but I do see Chris Paul's fingerprints all over the team when it comes to the calmness of the team, the guts of the team, the ability to fight through adversity. I think this Phoenix, this Phoenix Suns team is really great and it's really benefited from Chris Paul. And it was a signing that at the beginning of last offseason, maybe people would have shrugged off or said, okay, well, Chris Paul's just going to another young team and it won't really mean much. It has meant the world to this Phoenix Suns team, which as I stated at the beginning of this take, if the Phoenix Suns had a game like last night in which their primary scorer in Devin Booker was having a bad game last season and the season before that, they would have lost that game. They would have lost the game. DeAndre Ayton would have been forced to do more than he was asked to try and kind of substantiate the blow and try and, you know, get some score up. But Chris Paul and his mentorship has really meant the world to this Phoenix Suns team. And you could see it in how they play basketball. You could see it how they handle adversity. And I'm very proud and happy that Chris Paul has been able to find this role for the team. And now the national media is taking and and that's kind of the most important thing is the fact that the national media is becoming aware of it and they're getting to see it and they're starting to give him some praise that he is due some praise that I think was taken away in which he failed to you know move past the we- past the conference conference finals in his time in LA and his time in Houston being not what it was supposed to be because of Harden and of course him being on a team that wasn't very good but he led that team to the playoffs last year in okc and now he's at it again and now the media is taking notice of what chris paul can do and what he means as a mentor and what he means in a leadership role for a young rising basketball team that is exceeding expectations and that's the end of this episode of the hard-headed sports podcast apologies for it coming out so late we had a lot of catching up to do My name is Nick Ryan, and with that being said, stay hard-headed, but have a nice day.